the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Today is the third Sunday of the blessed month of Kiak, and today we read about the glorious visitation of Our Lady, the Mother of God, to her relative, Saint Elizabeth. And this This beautiful encounter between the Mother of God, St. Mary, and St. Elizabeth is uh, a beautiful uh, atmosphere of humility and joy and praise um, in the great things that God is doing at this time in both of their lives. And we see this encounter not just between two women, but the encounter is actually between the two babes who are in the wombs of their mothers, the Lord Jesus Christ and St. John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner and the announcer of the incarnation and the good things of Christ that he is coming to bring to humanity. And there are um, many things, that, of course, that we can focus on in the reading this morning, but I just want to look at a couple of aspects of the mother of God's humility. St. Mary here exemplifies in, a, in the most perfect way the nature of humility and the joy and the glory of those who humble themselves and are handmaidens of the Lord as she was. And so I just want to uh, focus on two, two points. The first one is the, the mother of God and her self-forgetfulness and the mother of God and her lowliness and how these apply also to us in our own life. The, the gospel this morning speaks about an event that's taking place immediately after the Annunciation of the Archangel Gabriel to St. Mary in Nazareth when he announced to her the good news of the Incarnation. And the Gospel this morning tells us that immediately after she received this revelation, after that she received this wondrous announcement from heaven, that because the angel told her that her cousin Elizabeth, her relative Elizabeth, was also who was called barren now in her sixth month, the mother of God immediately went to go serve her. We should be clear that she's not going just to celebrate. She's not going just to share with Elizabeth the good news, but she's going there to serve her. And the gospel says that Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to the city, to a city of Judah. In other words, she was in a hurry. She was rushing to go to her cousin Elizabeth. And instead of sort of basking in the enjoyment of what the angel has just said to her, and sort of instead of remaining sort of in that wonder and raptured in that mystery, immediately she forgets about her own sort of predicament that she's going to be in. And she thinks about her relative who is in need. Now in those days, of course, for a woman to give birth was not as convenient as it is today with the hospital systems that we have and the nursing systems that we have and the painkillers that we have and the epidurals and so on, right? So in those days, it was very necessary for the, the, the woman who was in labor to be surrounded by other women who were there before, during, and after the delivery uh, to care for 
her and to bring her back to health and, of course, to help with the baby. So to me, the first thing that sort of struck me was that the mother of God, in haste, goes to be of service to Elizabeth. But in her own, in her own experience, she will give birth in a manger. In her own experience, she will, she will forego even the, the little luxury that they had in those days of having many people around that could help in the, in the birth of a child. And this is, again, a sort of characteristic of, of the mother of God, that in every aspect, she is this perfect example of lowliness, humility, poverty. Um, and so she goes to offer what she will not be offered. She goes to give what will not be given to her. She goes to provide that which will not be provided for her. And, and so this is sort of the beginning of that, this idea of self-forgetfulness. Humility as self-forgetfulness. One of the saints said that those who do not know think that it is difficult to love. Nothing is easier or more joyful. It is the source of all happiness. You love as soon as you cease to think of yourself. You love as soon as you cease to think of yourself. In other words, love really begins when you have forgotten about yourself. That's when true love, selfless love, is activated. And, and this is related also to the purity of intention that Christ speaks of in the Gospels so often. Even when he says, for example, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Of course, he's using symbolic and metaphorical language here to, uh, to speak of this purity of intention, that your intentions should be so pure that you are not doing something for the wrong motive, that you're not doing something with the wrong intention. Because without forgetfulness of ourselves, we would, in a sense, it would be impossible to have purity of intention. Purity of intention implies a certain lack of awareness of how the good deed or the virtue even benefits me. It's just purely for the other, whether it be for God or for my neighbor. There's no sort of secondary intentions when we do good or when we seek holiness other than to glorify God and to be of service to our neighbor. And so self-forgetfulness then protects us from that hidden aspect of our ego, which even while it does sometimes good things and advances in virtue, but does it for the wrong reasons, for the wrong intentions. Even the most uh, holy of people are aware of how quickly their good deeds and their virtue can be turned in on themselves. So the greatest sort of guardian of, of self-forgetfulness is a hiddenness of life. The, the saints were very careful to hide all of their good deeds, to hide all of their virtue, to hide all of their talents as much as possible so that there wouldn't even be a part of them unknown even to themselves that would be seeking this good deed or this exercise of this talent for something other than a pure intention. So... This self-forgetfulness then is the greatest protection that we have a purity of intention that we, we, we don't let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. But of course, the, the idea of self-forgetfulness is not just 
directed towards ourselves, but it's also directed towards others. In other words, the more we are able to practice self-forgetfulness, the more we're also able to practice a certain forgetfulness of others. And don't misunderstand me here. I don't mean to forget others as in to be aloof to the needs of others or the care of others, but to be forgetful of, of the misdeeds of others, to be forgetful of the annoyances of others, to be forgetful of even the attacks uh, of others directed towards us. Somebody who has practiced self-forgetfulness is also able to overlook the weaknesses of others because not only is he not a spy on himself, but he's also not a spy on others. But as is usually the case, whenever we talk about humility, we always find ourselves in this dilemma. How do we, how do we balance this self-forgetfulness, this hiddenness, this humility with the natural God-given talents and gifts that he gives each one of us? Should we not exercise them? Should we give them back to God and say thank you, but no thank you? How do we balance the two? And I think the great uh, author and apologist C.S. Lewis, I think here gives one of the best examples and definitions of how these two seemingly contradicting ideas really are not and how perfectly well they come together. He says, God wants to bring us to a state of mind in, in which we could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact that it is the best without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than we would be if it had been done by another. Let me say it again, maybe in a paraphrase. God wants to bring us to a state in which he would give us the talents to, to, to create the, the most beautiful cathedral in the world. And we would recognize it as the most beautiful cathedral in the world. We would recognize that we were given the talents to make this most beautiful cathedral in the world. But we wouldn't be any more or less happy than if somebody else had done that same great work. That's that sort of neutrality of our will that recognizes that the talent that's given to me could have just as well been given to somebody else. And both are meant to glorify God have nothing to do with me or the other person. So when I sort of neutralize myself to that state where I could be just as glad as someone for someone else who could do the very thing that I can do or even do it better and be even more happy that they're doing it, then at the same time I recognize my talents and my gifts and I put them to use for the glory of God, but I maintain that sense of self-forgetfulness. And that's why St. Mary in the, in the Magnificat in her, in her my, uh, that beautiful canticle uh, that she sings, that she proclaims today in the presence of Elizabeth, she can say that all generations shall call me blessed. How does this go with the very words in the, the same canticle in which she's talking about her lowly state and being a maidservant of the Lord and, and what God has done to the poor and to the rich and so on? And yet she says, all generations will call me blessed. Right? It's in the very same way that St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17 says, whoever boasts should boast in the Lord. That is, he says, 
if we are going to boast in building this great cathedral that we have given the talent, been given the talent to, to build, we boast in the Lord. That is, we say, simply acknowledge that it is God's work being done in us. I'm just a vehicle of his grace. I'm just a vehicle of his talents and gifts. They could have just as well been given to somebody else, and I would be just as glad if they were given to somebody else. Because at the end of the day, all that matters is that God is glorified and not man. So there's a, a beautiful story in the life of St. Pope Carlos at the end of his life. It was like in the last week of his life um, when he was extremely sick and bedridden and, and the doctors were refusing anybody uh, to have access to him, to visit him. And a certain uh, gentleman who throughout the years had a number of problems with his heart, health problems with his heart. And he would say that every time he would go to Pope Carlos and Pope Carlos would pray for him, he would find relief of the pain and the discomfort. But this time he went and he was told that it was absolutely impossible to see the patriarch. And he thought to himself if he could just get a glimpse of the patriarch, even from a distance, as they opened the door and shut the door, those who were going in to serve him from the salon area outside of where his room was, he would be satisfied. And that's in fact what happened is that somebody was either entering or, or leaving the room and he just got a glimpse of the patriarch. But at the same time, the patriarch got a glimpse of one of his children who was in pain. And the Pope got up and he left his bed and he went to the man, and the man said, Sayyidna, what are you doing? I just wanted to get a glimpse of you. I, and he, he couldn't imagine that the patriarch in his condition would, would get out of his bed and come to see him. And the patriarch says to him, where have you been, my son? I have missed you. I haven't seen you in so long. And so the man tells him that his, his heart is bothering him again. And so the patriarch begins to pray, rubbing his heart and rubbing his heart and, and, and praying and rubbing his heart and praying and rubbing his heart until the man said all of the pain went. And then the patriarch went back to his sick bed. So there's that sense of self-forgetfulness when, when our love for the other, when our love for God causes us to be sort of oblivious to ourselves and to whatever it is that we're thinking about, that we're preoccupied with, our own pain, our own suffering, our own problems. That's why one of the greatest things for us to do whenever we're sort of in that dark place because we're sort of uh, centering in on ourselves and thinking about all that's wrong in our lives, the best thing that we can do is just go serve somebody, is just go and, do, go and, and be with somebody who also is suffering or who also is in pain, who also is in need of some comfort or compassion or mercy. It's the easiest way just to forget about ourselves and to find joy again in our life. And that's what Mother Teresa often talked about. So this is the first sort of example we see that St. Mary in haste, she goes and she, she, puts, she almost puts aside this great event that has just taken place, which most of us probably would have been locked up for a week or a month trying to just understand what had just happened, and yet she's focused on going to be of service to her relative Elizabeth. The second aspect of this humility is lowliness. 
This is a word that the mother of God uses, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. She doesn't simply say he has regarded his maidservant, which is already uh, a humbling uh, expression or title that she gives to herself, but the lowly state of her, of his maidservant. And here we, 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 we see that St. That Mary takes us back to a beautiful tradition, we can call it, of, or culture of the scriptures, going all the way back in the Old Testament. That is, that throughout all of the Old Testament, and we especially we see it in the, in the warnings in the, of the prophets, is that there's a special care and, and love that God has for the poor. There's a certain protection that he claims for the weak and for the oppressed and for the miserable. And there are certain warnings that he gives to anyone who will exploit the poor and the weak and the, and the, and the miserable. And as if these people, of which hopefully we are all part of, voluntarily, are the target of his love, are the special target of his love. Of course, all, the, the good and the bad, are, are recipients of the love of God. But in a special way, the poor and the weak, the lowly, are the special target of the love of God. And not only in this life is God sort of zealous for the lowly people, but he even speaks of the, of the eternal life as being only for the lowly, the eternal life being for, for those who are in this life, for those who in this life consider themselves to be in the company of the lowly. In the prophet Zephaniah, he says, Zephaniah, he says, when that day comes, I will remove your proud boasters from your midst in your midst, I will leave a humble and lowly people, and those who are left in Israel will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And those who comment on this prophecy see in it two fulfillments. The first is in the first coming of Christ, in which Christ will come in a partial way to address the boasters and the proud and the arrogant, and to raise up the humble and the lowly and the meek. But it also speaks of the second coming of Christ, the kingdom of God, when, when those who attempt to come to the wedding banquet without the, the proper garment will be cast out. And the servants will be told to go into the highways and byways and to, to bring in all from the street to sit at the table of the Lord. Who are those that are cast out and who are those that are invited? Those who are cast out are here the, the proud and the boasters, the arrogant of this world. And those who will be invited finally to have their due in eternity will be the lowly. And in the book of Sirach, that beautiful book of wisdom, it says, God overturns the thrones of the proud and enthrones the lowly in their place. He overturns the thrones of the proud and enthrones the lowly in their place. God plucks up the roots of the proud and plants the lowly in their place. What a beautiful image and hope for those who are deprived of all the glory of this world. And especially in the Psalms, that's why 
for us, it's so important for us to be familiar with the Psalms, to pray the Psalms, and to make the words of the Psalms our own words, our own cry, our own humble stance before God. For example, in the third hour of the Egbeya in Psalm 33 or 34, depending on the numbering that you, you, you find, we read, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his tribulations. Rich men have turned poor and gone hungry, but they that seek the Lord shall not be deprived of any good thing. The righteous cried and the Lord heard them and he delivered them out of their tribulations. He will save the humble of spirit. Many are the tribulations of the righteous and the Lord shall deliver them out of them all. The Lord keeps all their bones, not one of them shall be broken. And this is just one of, of, of many such expressions throughout the Psalms. And the idea is that when we pray these Psalms, we are that person that are crying out to God and saying, look at me as this lowly person. Look at me as this lowly person. And in, in, in the life of, again, of St. Pope Carolus VI, his disciples said that sometimes when he was sitting and they would come in to bring him some disaster of a problem that was happening in the church or that he, to bring to his attention, he would simply look up to the heavens and say, my eyes are ever looking towards the Lord, for he, for he will draw my feet from out of the snare. Have mercy upon me and look upon me, for I am an only child or an orphan, the psalm says. Right? So the sense that even this great miracle-working patriarch, when he was faced with, with anything, he, he, he raised his eyes towards God and said, look upon me, I'm an orphan. I'm, a, I'm an only child. And that's that, that heart that God cannot resist, that lowliness that the mother of God today shares in this beautiful encounter with Elizabeth. And as I, I said this story to you before, some maybe a few years back, about this beautiful um, dialogue that took place between the Lord Jesus Christ and this Vietnamese, young Vietnamese saint, Marcel Vaughn. And Marcel Vaughn was this uh, very weak, um, very overly sensitive uh, young man who uh, was sort of almost made fun of by, by the others in his monastic community. Um, and yet he had this special relationship with the Lord that the Lord was speaking to him and only him and his spiritual father knew about it. And he, spiritual father had him write down all of these conversations between him and Christ, which is now in this beautiful volume called Conversations. And in one of these conversations, the Lord Jesus was telling Marcel that the reason why he's in this specific monastic community is because he wasn't strong enough to be in any other one. And Marcel was a little bit sensitive in hearing that. So he said, so, he's, sp he's speaking to the Lord, he said, so then I'm very weak then. And listen to the Lord's response. He says, one could not be more so. So he's, he's sort of defensive in saying, so you're saying that I'm in this specific community because I, I'm so weak I couldn't have made it anywhere else? So you're saying that I'm very, very weak. And the Lord says, you couldn't be more so. So then Marcel is sort of confused and he says, um, but the Lord says to Marcel, he says, it is precisely because of your weakness that you are on my part the object of a greater love. It is precisely because of your weakness that you are on my part the object of a greater love. 
And he says to him, remember always that you must never be sad because of your weakness. Don't ever be sad because you're weak, because you're not strong, because you, you keep falling and you keep struggling and you're not like everyone else who you see sort of floating in the sky with virtue and with talents and with gifts. And then he says, and no matter how great your weakness may be, be tranquil always, be at peace, believing that my love would never have the heart to separate itself from you. What else do we want? If we have the promise of the Lord that even in our weakness, even in our lowliness, even in our misery, that we are the object of his love and that he will never separate himself from us, what more than, what more than this do we want? And in another dialogue with another saint, a nun, the Lord said to, to this nun, he said, do you know, daughter, who you are and who am I? Or sorry, who I am? I'm trying to imagine if, if the Lord came to one of us and asked this question, how would we dare answer? Do you know, daughter, who you are and who I am? And he says to her, if you know these two things, you have beatitude, you have blessedness in your grasp. So he says to her, you are she who is not, and I am he, I am he who is you are she who is not, and I am he who is. Let your soul, he goes on to say, be, become penetrated with this truth, and the enemy can never lead you astray. You will never be caught in any snare of his, nor ever transgress any commandment of mine. You will have set your feet on the royal road, which leads to the fullness of grace, truth, and light. I think that the mother of God, St. Mary, I think she knew, she had this knowledge. She had this knowledge that he is he who is, and she is he or she who is not. We are, in the words of the saints, nothingness. We are nothingness because we cannot call ourselves into being. We cannot remain in existence without God sustaining us. Therefore, in reality, who are we in ourselves? We are nothing. We exist because God says to us, exist. We exist continually at this moment because he continues to say to us, exist. And we will exist only because he says to us, continue to exist with me. If we remember that we are nothingness, then we can glory as the mother of God did, and as St. Paul has done, and as all the saints have done, in the, the gifts and talents God has given us, the blessedness which is his, which he has given to us, to be with him in eternity, to do great things, and to glorify him at all times, and to serve one another, we can enjoy the goodness of God without ever forgetting who we are. And that's why an, uh, another um, Orthodox bishop, he said that the greatest enemy to us is ourselves, our egoism. He says, there is no enemy, an adversary in the spiritual life. There is only one enemy, our very selves. There is only one sickness, our egoism. In battling against our egoism, we gradually build up an atmosphere of humility within us. So lowliness then in the, in the scriptures, in the, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is not simply those who are lowly involuntarily. That is, it is not simply those who have 
been on the margins, the, those who are experiencing poverty or injustice, but it's those who, in spite of their lowliness, turn to God, trust in God, look to God. So the virtue of lowliness in and of itself is only 50%, if we can try to quantify, of the equation. The other 50%, or perhaps we should say 99%, or 99.99%, if we want to be more accurate, is trust in God. Lowliness and poverty and misery without turning to God is not a virtue. It's not what, what the mother of God here is exemplifying. It's not what the prophets are speaking about. And so we have the opportunity then to acknowledge our lowliness, even as we saw in that quote, that beautiful quote of C.S. Lewis, even if we were given the, the talents to make the most beautiful cathedral in the world or to do miracles or to have visions, whatever it is, whatever talents, whatever gifts God gives us, gives us we can, as St. Paul says, boast in the Lord. But we can choose to remain lowly as the mother of God has sort of embedded in her soul. The Lord Jesus Christ, he warned his apostles and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They lord it over them. They, 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 they control the world. They sit on top and they and they lord it over them. They are masters over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. So here he's telling them, you have a choice. Lowliness is a choice. It's not just a condition that one finds themselves in. It shall not be so among, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever should be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he warns the apostles with all the gifts that they're going to have, with all the ability to do miracles and speak in tongues and heal the sick and raise the dead. He warns them, choose lowliness. And one of my favorite exam or models of this, um, these words of Christ were given by one of the modern saints who speaks of the, the, the inverted pyramid. He speaks of the world as being sort of this pyramid in which those who lord it over them, that is the powerful, the rich, the, the mighty, right? They sit at the top of this pyramid and they control all of those who are at the lower levels of the pyramid. Of course, at the bottom are the, the poor and the miserable and the weak and the sick and, 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 and so on. And he says, Christ came and he took this pyramid and he turned it upside down. So now, the, the head of the pyramid is at the bottom. And Christ is there at the bottom of, of this inverted pyramid, carrying the injustices and the pain and the misery of the world all on his shoulders. And he says to his apostles and he says to his mother and he says to us, if you want to be where I am, you have to make your way down this inverted pyramid to be where I am at the head of the inverted pyramid. That is, you have to share the burden with me. You have to be at the bottom. You have to be the most voluntarily poor person as Christ was. Finally, I just want to read um, a beautiful um, quote from um, a writer who speaks about the, the, um, the prayer that 
this canticle, the Magnificat, and how important it is for us to make it our prayer, that we should take these words of St. Mary and we should pray them regularly. They should become part of our own prayer life. He says, one will never be able to fathom with what passion she expressed each word. The more you meditate them, the more treasures you will discover. You do not think that you will fully comprehend, yet do not think that you will fully comprehend all the beauty expressed in this canticle. To reach this point, one must love only as Mary can and is capable of loving. To fully understand the Magnificat, you must know the mysteries that only she penetrated. Knowing that the Magnificat is the outpouring of the loving heart of Mary and the expression of her gratitude to God, you must recite this canticle with much fervor and devotion. The most opportune moment to recite the Magnificat is when you give thanks to the Lord for a particular grace or benefit that he has granted to you. What better way to express your gratitude than with the very words of the Magnificat? There could, could there be anything more pleasing to the Lord than the recitation of the very canticle that would remind him, that is, remind the Lord, of the intense love of its author who pronounced it for the very first time? In other words, if at any time we find ourselves grateful to God for something, we should use the words of the Mother of God. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior so that her spirit becomes our spirit, and so that we please God by reminding him, in a sense, as this author says, of the author of those words, and he looks upon us as he looks upon his mother with such favor. And so today, this beautiful visitation, four people are rejoicing, St. Mary and her son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Elizabeth and her son, St. John the Baptist, and there's a school of virtue, there's a school of, of humility and joy and peace and gratitude that's taking place in these short verses. So I hope that we will each meditate on it in our own, in our own homes and in our prayer life and try, as we, this last uh, quote said, to sort of penetrate and fathom the, the depths of the, the spirit of the mother of God so that in some portion they might be our own words and become our own spirit. And glory be to God forever. Amen. <laughs>